I want to begin today by talking about some ideas from the world of psychology, developed by Abraham Maslow. Now, Maslow was an American psychologist and university professor who passed away in 1970. And Maslow is best known for what is known as Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is illustrated on the screen behind me. Some of you may be familiar with this. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So we're going to talk about this a little. And I want to start uh, by focusing on the, the top of the triangle or the pyramid. Um, Maslow talked about this idea of self-actualization. As you see, it's achieving one's full potential, including creative activities. Uh, that's the top third of this pyramid. And I want to relate that psychological idea of self-actualization with, uh, with our spiritual journey, our, our faith. And, and I would say uh, equate self-actualization with, with the potential and possibility of us reaching our God-given full potential for our lives. Now, if that's the, the top of this psychological uh, Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, I want to focus on the bottom third there where it's, um, you know, uh, titled basic needs. And, if, and, and for me, this has helped me basically understand our world at large. When, when you look at just the basic physical needs that people have, food, water, warmth, uh, you know, rest, uh, shelter, and all the rest, and then the next one of it talks about safety needs, um, security and safety. It, it helps me understand the world we live in because when we talk about, you know, when we look at, at the world as a whole and we recognize that there are people who um, are struggling in poverty uh, and struggle, you know, if we spent 90% of our waking hours trying to look for food and uh, drinkable water, that's going to prevent us from the luxury, honestly, that many of us have in this country of being able to achieve the higher levels of this pyramid. Um, so when I think of, uh, for example, Syria, and I think of what's gone on in Syria for the past several years, and I think of the, the refugees that have left there, when they're struggling just to survive, it's hard to imagine that they're, you know, contemplating the, the higher things with regards uh, to, to self-actualizing God's fullest potential for their lives because they're just trying to survive. So this helps me understand the world we live in. Now, uh, th and, and as you can see, it, it goes up, uh, this idea of just um, relationships, belonging, and love, and, and then esteem needs. So as, as these basic things uh, uh, are fulfilled, it allows us to be able to come to a better sense of what Maslow would call uh, self-actualization and what I'm equating to God's full potential for our lives. So it's with these things in mind that I now want to continue. And let's consider uh, John Ackhoff's uh, take as to why so few people actually achieve self-actualization. John Ackhoff is the founder of a sometimes humorous and at other times uh, a quite profound website called StuffChristiansLike.net. And he's authored uh, many books, uh, and he also, for a brief period of time, worked with Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey is familiar to many of us because of uh, the Financial Peace University that we, we do here uh, at Stonebridge. John Afkiff uh, says, you know, his, his take as to why so few, many, few people actually achieve self-actualization, why so few people actually uh, accomplish their fullest God-given potential, he writes, Fear. 
Fear is the reason uh, that, uh, the reason is that fear only gets loud when you do things that matter. Fear never bothers you if you're average, but the second you dare to do more than ordinary, fear awakens. I would add to that that uh, fear never bothers you if you're satisfied with average, but the second you dare to do more than ordinary, fear awakens. So, Right now, I, before I move forward, I, I, I just want, you're probably kind of, kind of thinking about several things. This idea of self-actualization, maybe your own struggle of, of feeling deep in your heart that God has a full potential uh, that he wants uh, and you to accomplish, and yet you perhaps struggle with that. And you may be contemplating, well, your own issues of fear. Like, well, if I actually do that, like, what does that mean? And what if I fail? And so on and so forth. Um, you know, the, the opposite of fear is faith. The opposite of fear is faith. And so, um, right? So, so when we're struggling with fear, sometimes, at least in my own faith life, I, I try to identify, I'm afraid right now. And when I identify that, I try to transform my own personal prayer life to faith. Lord, help me have faith in the midst of fear. Um, now, if you're thinking about all these things, kind of digest that for a second, and I want to move to my next idea, and that is this. Try to imagine a world in which Jesus had caved to fear. So, uh, I, it's, not, um, it's not impossible that that was the case. I'm sure there were many times in which Jesus had to face his own fears. We have at least at least two examples of that in scripture. Uh, following uh, his baptism, uh, we're told that Jesus uh, fasted and prayed uh, and went out into the desert and Satan tempted him. Uh, that may have been a time where he could have caved to fear. Um, and then later in the Garden of Gethsemane, when uh, on the night of his uh, arrest, Jesus is with his disciples. And, and as you know the story, he's asking them to stay up with him all night and pray with him. Um, and um, he's... Uh, kind of tortured by the possibility of what's going to happen that night. They all fall asleep on him, and, and he's there alone. And, and yet his, uh, his prayer that night is, you know, if you t- take this cup from me. And those words, have, for me, have always kind of portrayed this idea of, like, like, fear. And yet, right next to the fear in that prayer, Jesus also prays, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. So right next to the fear is faith. So today we're going to explore a key, a key characteristic. We're going to look at two key actions and a key experience. Uh, we're going to look at four things. A characteristic, actions, and a key experience that launched Jesus to succeed as Savior of the world. And how these same things can inspire us for the new year and hopefully for the rest of our lives. So number one on your outline, uh, the key virtue, the key characteristic to, that, that helped launch Jesus into his fullest God's given potential and would help us do the same is humility. 
humility. Now, the theme, uh, the one theme that runs through today's scripture is humility. And in one instance, it's obvious. And in another instance, it's not so obvious. When John the Baptist is documented as saying, after me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All of that is an expression, a blatant statement that John the Baptist exercised humility. He knew his place in the world. What makes this surprising is when it's set against the backdrop for reasons I won't go into. Uh, Some scholars believe that in their time, John the Baptist was actually more famous than Jesus. All of Jerusalem, all of the countryside, it says, came out to hear John the Baptist preach. But John the Baptist did not allow his fame to go to his head. Instead, he did his best to to refocus that spotlight off of himself and on to Jesus. John the Baptist's humility is obvious. What may not be so obvious is Jesus' humility. Consider this. If Jesus is the Son of God, perfect and without sin... Why would Jesus need to subject himself to John the Baptist's baptism of repentance? What exactly is Jesus repenting of? Jesus' baptism is best understood not as an act of repentance, but rather uh, in two ways. One is as an anointing. Last week, I talked about the three gifts uh, from the Magi, and we talked about myrrh and how myrrh was mixed with cinnamon and olive oil and used for anointing. And this oil, this anointing oil, would be used to consecrate all of the things in the temple, uh, consecrate the priests themselves, consecrate uh, the, the prophets and anoint the prophets and eventually the kings. And so one way we can understand uh, Jesus' baptism is as an anointing. Another way we can understand Jesus' baptism is as an act of humility in which he who is equal to God and worthy of himself to be worshipped humbled himself to identify himself with humanity. Paul explains it best when he wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Jesus being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. To my point, Jesus wasn't concerned with public opinion or personal reputation. Jesus' primary concern was with fulfilling God's plan And fulfilling God's fullest potential for himself to God's glory. And to that end, through baptism, Jesus identified with God's people. Jesus was not about to let pride get in the way of fulfilling God's plan for himself. And fulfilling God's plan for all of us. In other words, Jesus exercised humility. Now all of this got me to thinking... Um, As a pastor, one of the privileges I've had, especially doing ministry in one place for a long period of time, is 
to see, and it's something I, it really just fires me up. There's, there's, you know, this world is broken and people make sinful choices and there are consequences to those choices. And all of that, there comes with it just a weight and a burden. And there's something uh, I celebrate in my heart. When I see people who are lost, who find, who are seeking answers and thank God, they find their way towards God. Uh, and, and often that is through finding their way to church um, and hearing God's word spoken clearly. And God speaks through God's word and, and starts to transform their lives. And people who are broken and hurting come to faith. And they come to faith through Jesus Christ. And what I see about the, the burden of, of sin and brokenness in our world is that for so many people, it affects their, their self-esteem in a negative way. In other, way, in other words, uh, their, their esteem is low. They have a low self-esteem. They feel guilty. They feel shame. They, they, they feel like they're unworthy. There's something more for them, and, and they're not there. And so they have low self-esteem. So one of the, the, the joys that I've had as a pastor is to see people who, who are on this journey, and at some point they, they cross a threshold, and you can see, and I've seen it, it rarely, uh, if ever, honestly, it happens overnight. But over a long period of time, I've seen people who are struggling and hurting, and all of a sudden, they're standing taller. There's a light in their eyes. It, it's as if they've experienced God's healing. Well, not as if. They have experienced God's healing. And in so doing, they, they feel better about themselves because they're at peace with God and they're coming to be at peace with others, right? Now, I love that. And I identify with those people and I reach out to those people. I just love that, that, that journey. Here's what God showed me this week and something that I've known academically, I've known here, but I haven't known here. And that is the other side of that pendulum. And that other side of that pendulum is pride. But broken people with a low self-esteem, but there's a lot of broken people who are just arrogant and prideful, that they've made a decision in their brokenness and hurt that they don't need God, that they can do it by themselves. That, that faith is a crutch. I'm fine by myself. And there are some people who are living in a state of brokenness because of their pride. There are people, and, and, another, and not all of us are broken in that big way. But I think many of us can perhaps, in a moment of truth, acknowledge that there are areas in our lives... Where, you know, we haven't given it up to God. I'm good. I've got this covered. This area of my life, I've got it under control. I don't need you, God, in that area. And it's that pride and that arrogance. In the same way that low self-esteem can prevent someone from accomplishing their fullest potential, their self-actualization, God's potential and plan, uh, their, their God's destiny for their lives, how low self-esteem can prevent that from happening, it occurred to me in a more heartfelt way that pride can do the same thing. That pride can be the stumbling block to prevent people, prevent people. That's the weird thing about arrogance. They're like, I'm fine. I can do this myself. But they're actually holding themselves back with that pride by, accomplish, by, by being able to accomplish what God's plan is for their lives. 
And so I've, I've got a warning, right? And the warning, it's like mom said. And this is the warning. Mom said, you know, you can do this the easy way or you can do this the hard way. <laughs> and the easy way is to soften our hearts and to start letting go and invite God to come into those areas of our lives and start changing us. It's hard work, but believe it or not, that's the easier way. Because in my life experience, and perhaps you've experienced this as well, in my life experience, any time I'm standing on you know, a foundation of pride and arrogance and I'm not letting go, God has this wonderful way of <laughs> knocking me down. That's a nice way to say it, <laughs> right? All right, so one key characteristic uh, that uh, is a theme in today's scripture is that of humility and recognizing how humility, humility um, actually projects us into better fulfilling God's plan for our life. Secondly, number two, uh, two key actions that I want to um, note in today's scripture, and that is acceptance and ownership. Acceptance and ownership. In today's scripture, Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River is the inaugural event. It's the launch pad of Jesus' ministry. It's the launch pad of Jesus' mission. It's the launch pad of Jesus' purpose. Jesus is believed to have been about 30 years old when he was baptized Now, with the exception of Jesus' birth, with the exception of getting left behind in the temple as he was a little child, um, and uh, with the exception of his Jewish mother's insistence that he do a miracle at a wedding in a place called Cana, with the exception of those three events, we know absolutely nothing about Jesus until he was 30 years old, until he was baptized. We don't know anything in recorded history. Basically, for 30 years, Jesus was laying low. Now, in regard to today's scripture, I think we are so distracted by what happened to Jesus, right? He's, he's at that river, and, and there's just the, this whole kind of festival scene. There's people out there. Um, there's a crowd. John the Baptist has been preaching, um, and and Jesus comes, and when he's baptized, there's this, you know, this, how do you articulate this? A, a, a spirit comes down upon him in the, in, in the, in the symbol of a dove. Um, and then this voice, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So all, we are so perhaps distracted by what is happening to Jesus that we might overlook what was happening within Jesus. In the verses that follow today's scripture in Mark Uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and following, Jesus departs immediately following his baptism. He departs into the desert where we are told he was tempted by Satan and Jesus fasted and he prayed for 40 days. I can't help but think that in order for Jesus to self-actualize, in other words, in order for Jesus to fully accomplish God's purpose for his life, Jesus, during that intense period of prayer, had to fully accept his God-given purpose for himself. For Jesus, 
Savior was no longer a future possibility. Messiah was no longer a future possibility. It was a very present reality. The time was now. It was go time. And when Jesus exits the 40 days of fasting and prayer, Jesus exits that in his first message. His first words recorded are, Jesus declares, the time has come. In other words, Jesus owned it. After 30 years of laying low, Jesus accepted God's purpose for his life, and he took personal ownership of it. Now, I discovered a saying this week that I've never heard before that really sums up what I'm trying to communicate. Maybe you've heard of it. And the saying is this. No one washes a rental car. No one washes a rental car. Are you renting your faith? Enjoying the perks of the Christian faith without any of the responsibility of personal ownership. When you accept and take ownership of your personal faith, you are one step closer to self-actualization. You are one step closer to fulfilling God's plan and purpose for your life. When you accept and take ownership of your personal faith, you are one step closer to fulfilling God's destiny for your life. Jesus did not rent it. And for our sake, I thank God for that. I believe God desires to do something great through each and every one of us. But it's not going to happen if we're just simply satisfied with renting our Christian faith. Is the time now, is the time now for some of us today to accept and take ownership of what God wants to do through your life. Jesus accepted his purpose and claimed ownership when he declared the time has come. Are you ready to humbly accept God's plan and purpose for your life, to take ownership and declare today the time has come? So we've looked at one key virtue or characteristic, and that is humility. We've looked at two key actions, accepting and taking, uh, acceptance and taking ownership. Lastly, I want to talk about one key experience in today's scripture, and that key experience is approved by God. Approved by God. Now, on this point, I began to consider the value and importance of certification. And you're thinking, how boring is that? <laughs> Certification. Let me explain. There is, in America, a lot of food, uh, agricultural products, meat products that can be consumed. However, don't you feel just a little more comfortable knowing that a lot of that food has been approved by the USDA stamp of approval? 
Now, many of you are thinking, I don't really think about it. I just go to the refrigerator and get food out. And pretty much that's true for me as well. But isn't it nice to know that there's a thing called the United States Department of Agriculture that inspects the food that we eat and makes sure it's safe to eat? It's nice to know, right? Certification. Let me uh, turn up the heat. Imagine you've been heinously accused of a terrible crime. Falsely accused. You've been falsely accused of a heinous crime. How many of you would feel comfortable being represented by a lawyer who had not passed their bar exam? <laughs> Y'all laugh. Now think about it. It's an absurd question. If a person has not passed the bar exam, they're not a lawyer. So let me rephrase the question. How many of you were wrongly accused for a heinous crime? How many of you would feel comfortable being represented by some dude? <laughs> let me turn up the heat a little more. How many of you would feel comfortable if you were going into heart surgery? And you were going into heart surgery by a doctor who hadn't passed their medical board exams, who wasn't certified. Now, certification, <laughs> it's important. I, I want to dig deeper into today's scripture and um, compare it with the other gospels which also record Jesus' baptism. Um, both Matthew and Luke also record Jesus' baptism. And I think I have a screen for this. And I, I'm kind of digging into the details, but I, I will get to my point. Um, so in Matthew, that's not today's scripture. In Matthew, this, there's this, this huge event, right? Uh, everybody's going out to the Jordan to hear this John the Baptist guy preaching. Um, and they're all going out. <clears throat> and, and at some point, Jesus makes his arrival. And, and then there's this scene of him humbly being, uh, submitting himself to baptism and identifying with, him, with us as humans. And, and then this dove comes down. And, and as that dove uh, 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 descends upon Jesus, these words are recorded. This is my son. That's recorded in Matthew, but in today's scripture, which is in Mark and, and Luke as well, it's recorded as, you are my son. Now, what's the difference? When it says, this is my son, when you hear those words, so these, this crowd hears those words. I don't, I can't, you know, you, you can debate this after scripture. I don't know if they actually heard it or if they heard it in their minds and hearts. I don't know. But they heard these words, this is my son. <clears throat> Who are those words for? This is my son. It's for us. It's for the crowd that was there. They, they're, they're seeing all these things, and, and, and all of a sudden, they hear the words, this is my son. It's as if God is pointing to Jesus and saying, this is the one. Pay attention to him. Certification. Certified. And I'm, <laughs> it's just, it's funny to me, because it's like, like if, if, if Jesus is good enough for God, and, and, you know, rubber stamps it, good enough for me. And all that crowd heard it, and 2,000 years later, because it's recorded in scriptures, we hear it too. God certified, this is my son, and we can find assurance in that. Now, what about the second part? Now, some people would say, well, you know, scriptures don't agree with each other, and that's a reason why, you know, when it doesn't agree with each other, this is something that undermines the Christian faith, because scriptures should be consistent, all this kind of stuff. Okay, whatever. We can talk about that later. I actually appreciate that there are many people, you know, we all have different perspectives when we see the same thing. 
And so the, the scripture, the gospels don't necessarily, they aren't identical carbon copies of each other. So in Luke and in Mark, the same event, but the words are recorded, you are my son. Who are those words for? Yeah, they're for Jesus. You ever wonder, um, God, you, you read the gospel, you read the Jesus story, and you look at all that Jesus went through, and you've got to, you know, reading between the lines, you've got to imagine it took its toll on a daily basis. The exhaustion, the crowds, the, you know, this and that, the, the fact that the religious leaders are following them, and they're like spies, and, and with each, with the momentum of the narrative, they're, they're trying to, first they're observing, and then they're taking, and then they're like, this is a threat, and then they, some, they want to kill him. And they're trying to, they're planning, they're plotting to kill him. And how Jesus dealt with that. And, and especially on the night of his arrest. As, 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 it's, as it's reaching this, uh, this apex, <laughs> right? It, it's, it's, it's coming to this conclusion. And he's at, I mean, the, that moment where he's just looking for people to support him and his disciples themselves fall asleep on him. And then eventually as he's bound and arrested and taken away, they kind of disappear into the night. He's all alone. And do you ever wonder, how did Jesus do it? Now, here's the mistake that we can make. We can just spiritualize it. Well, he's the son of God. Everything for him, he's the son of God. It's different for him. And I think as Christians, we, that may be a, a mistake because if we over-spiritualize everything that Jesus did, we disconnect the fact that he was, yes, 100% God, but we disconnect the reality that he was 100% human. If we just say, oh, he was different, it, 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 it disconnects the reality that Jesus had to feel the humanness and the fears that we feel. And so do you ever wonder on that night of his arrest, how did he do it? And I don't want to over-spiritualize it. I think that what Jesus could dig deep, when he dug deep, when he was tempted by fear and trying to lean into his faith, that he, there were moments that he could turn back to. Some of them recorded in scripture, and I'm sure other moments that went unrecorded in scripture. And one of the moments that Jesus could turn back to was that moment of his baptism. Certified for us, yes, but in his heart, he could turn back to that moment and remember and draw from that memory. God said to me, <laughs> that's gone. <laughs> you are my son. He was approved. He was certified. And he knew it in his heart because he had heard it and he had experienced it. Now, I want to make this transition and I, I want to do it well. And I'm going to say a couple things. <laughs> I hope I do this right. You are certified by God. However, Unlike Jesus, it's not because of anything you've done. You are certified by God. God loves you. He loves you so much. You're certified not because of what you've done, but what God has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ. This whole idea of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and self-actualization self kind of falls apart, and I'll tell you why. 
because of sin and brokenness in the world. You can't accomplish self-actualization because the sin and brokenness of this world will undermine it every time. We can only reach God's fullest potential for our lives, not because of what we've done, but what Jesus could do. Jesus reached God's fullest potential for him, his son, on the cross, which was his plan and his destiny. And it's through the cross and it's through Jesus that we are certified. That God wants to tell you that you are loved and that you are a son and a daughter and a precious individual in his sight. 